Lucky few listeners, we've got a real treat for you today. I don't know if you have heard of Clara Bidwell-Smith. I have known her of her for a very long time, and she is our guest today. So we're going to get, we're just going to get right to it because she offers so much good information. I think this is an episode that is worth marking, sharing, coming back to. I know I'm going to listen to this probably a dozen times, even after having the conversation. So unbelievably helpful. So let's get right to shouting some worth and shifting narratives for people with Down syndrome. Listeners, welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. As I said, we are just ecstatic to have Claire Bidwell-Smith joining us today. She's a licensed therapist and a grief expert. A grief expert. How many people right now listening are experiencing grief in some form? Raise your hand. My hand's up. She's here to give us some tools, resources for coping through all of the emotions that can come with our grief, including the grief that is attached to a Down syndrome diagnosis. We're so, so grateful to have her on today. She's such a superstar. This is an important conversation, so let's get right to it. This week's episode is sponsored by Able Now, tax advantage savings accounts for eligible individuals with disabilities. What's on your wish list this holiday season? For a simple and practical solution, consider requesting gift contributions to an Able Now account. With Able Now, family and friends can provide financial assistance without endangering an account owner's eligibility for certain disability benefits. Once you have an Able Now account, anyone can contribute. Get started at ablenow.com. That's ablenow.com. Before we hear from our guests, um, I want to read another one of your kind reviews. This review comes from Tiger Mama 66. First of all, Tiger Mama 66, I already feel safe around you and I'd like you to be in my corner. Tiger Mama 66 says, love the information and resources and encouragement shared. Thank you for all that you do to advocate. Thank you, Tiger Mama 66, for listening and leaving that review. Friends, if you haven't left a review yet, now's your moment. Hit pause, leave a review, come on back for this conversation. Uh, The reviews mean so much to us. We love to know how you're feeling about the podcast, and it also helps the podcast be seen more on different platforms. To leave your review, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and do that today. All right, listeners, I'm here today with the one and only Claire Bidwell-Smith. This is such a treat. Claire is a licensed therapist specializing in grief and author of three nonfiction books published in 21 countries, including The Rules of Inheritance, After This, When Life is Over, Where Do We Go?, and Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. Claire offers numerous online programs for grief in addition to working with people one-on-one, as well as training other clinicians to work in the field of grief and loss. Led by her own experiences with grief and fueled by her work in hospice and private practice, Claire strives to provide support for all kinds of people experiencing all kinds of grief. In addition to having given dozens of talks on grief, Claire has written for and been featured in many publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The LA Times, CNN, Forbes, and Psychology Today. She deeply loves her work and is devoted to expanding the conversation about grief and loss Listeners, this is a real, real treat. Claire is a pretty big deal in my in my world, in my book. So Claire, welcome to the Lucky Few podcast. Oh, thank you, Heather. I'm really excited to be here. 
Me too. So I'll have to start off with our listeners by saying that we have a mutual friend who is Lindsay Strickland, who's been on the podcast twice to talk about her project Worth the Conversation. We'll have links, listeners, to those episodes so you can go back and listen to that. And right before we hit record, we both were just saying how much we absolutely adore our friend Lindsay. She's just she's the best. She's the best. But I have not ever met you before. This is our first time meeting. And we were excited that you were open to coming on the podcast because we haven't had a conversation around grief when it comes to a diagnosis or even just the raising of a child with Down syndrome in a world where Down syndrome continues to be rejected. Mm -hmm. We have talked, my co-hosts and I, it's come up many times about like this, how grief isn't just a moment in our diagnosis of our child um, and how it sneaks up. I've shared recently and I'll share with you too that the season I'm in right now with my oldest daughter, Macy, who is 15, will be 15 this month and has Down syndrome. I feel more grief now around her diagnosis than I have ever in her 15 years of life because mm. of the stage we're in. And it's just, grief is just a very... What are you grieving? Pardon? What are you grieving? I'm grieving her. I'm, I'm grieving a world in which she can find belonging mm-hmm. in her stage of life. Yeah. I have my, my ideas around that. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that more. I think yeah. adolescence is just a really difficult time. And she is not embraced by her peers mm-hmm. as she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a loneliness and an isolation. Yeah. And then I watch, it's twofold. We're just getting into it, friends. This yeah. is also my own therapy <laughs> session. So welcome, everybody. Um, or we also, there's also the sense of watching, right? The comparison, which I want to talk about comparison and grief, but of watching my friends who have kids the same age with Down syndrome who do have beautiful friendships, who are socially, quote, appropriate, Mm -hmm. who can read, who can write, who can do these things, who are having sleepovers. There's that piece. Mm -hmm. And then there's the piece of her younger sister, who's 12, who is entering into the space that I think Macy deserved three years ago at 12 with Mm. friends calling and texting and sleepovers and invitations and watches her sister go to a thing. And Mason says to me, Truly's going to hang out with friends? Yeah, babe. And her phone doesn't ring and there's no invitations. And I, my grief for me in the Down syndrome diagnosis has really very rarely been around Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's been around how the world perceives and excludes yeah. my loved one with Down syndrome. Yeah. And what's Macy's experience? Like how much of your grief is projected and you oh, know, how much is she feeling? <laughs> That you Yes, no, I love that's a really important question. Thankfully, through therapy, I have been able to recognize a wound in myself from my own adolescence mm-hmm. and through work can see how I do project. Um, mm-hmm. there's I have some awareness there that I'm grateful for. And and so that that is absolutely happening. And Mason is in her ways, expressing her loneliness. Um, she does this self-talk thing where she's in her room having conversations with people that she wishes were happening. So like mm. certain kids at school, like, hey, Mace. Oh, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Do you want to come hang out? Oh, yeah, sure. I love your shirt. Oh, I love your shirt too. Okay. And so that that always crushes me. And she wants to, she expresses that she wants to do things. Yeah. And and for her, there can be behaviors that I've 
I have linked to her mm-hmm. feeling a lack of belonging, but some of that is a guess. And some of that's a projection. There's so many Tell layers, me. right? There's just so many layers. I mean, I think- Tell me more, Claire. I think your grief is real and important. And then it's got all these layers that are also pieces that you do need to tease apart and peel apart. And I think in general, we project a lot onto our kids. In general, we also project a lot of grief. Um, You know, I work with a lot of parents who've maybe lost a partner. And so they're raising kids without a mom or a dad. And we can project enormous amounts of grief onto them that they're not feeling necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at them and thinking, oh my God, they're missing this and that, and they're never going to have this or that they're not necessarily always experiencing that. So it's our grief work that we're doing um, for ourselves. And it's maybe bringing up old stuff like it is for you, um, old things that happened in your life. And it's all an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity Mm -hmm. to understand yourself in a different way. It's an opportunity to reframe things like, is Mason having, what, what is her experience when she's having those conversations? Is it, is it fulfilling to her? Like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of cool, right? Like, how cool that she's having those conversations at all, even if they're these kind of imaginary moments or experiences that she's having just with herself. Like, we can look at that. And I know as a parent, I have a lot of kids and I I know (laughs) I know all about uh, the projecting all kinds of stuff. So I can imagine what it would feel like to watch that. But then to really think about what is her experience? Like, we project a lot of suffering onto people. I think about people who are going through end of life and I sit with their loved ones after they've died. And there's a lot of processing of what their loved ones experienced at the end of life, but it's not necessarily what they did experience. You know, they didn't Mm. necessarily suffer in the ways that we perceived. Um, So that's just one angle of this. But again, just to point out how many layers there are and how many opportunities there are to reflect on our own journeys and um, reframe what we're looking at in different ways. Yeah. And I think a part of another layer too, that I think our listeners can relate to is how often our loving with down syndrome does lack maybe a communication skill, mm-hmm. right? Like some kids and some kids who can verbally communicate or in other ways still probably lack some of that ability to express their feelings, but to sit down with Macy and have a conversation and say, how do you feel about, you know, or what are your, what are your experiences with, she doesn't have the language mm-hmm. to even say it, right? So like you're right. saying, there's, there's like the layers. So mm-hmm. then there's guessing, it, yeah. which is, for me, I can see is almost always projecting mm-hmm. <laughs> my my own, my ideas and my experience. And and I wanted, okay, we jumped in real deep here, <laughs> friends, and I'm happy to do it, but I want the, my listeners to, like think, to feel grateful for this conversation too. It's not just my own therapy session. I... I want to go back then to the idea. Well, I, a couple of things here, Claire. I've got a million things actually. I want to talk about tangible things to do in in that. Like once you recognize, hey, there's a projection here. What are some tools that we can use so that we're handling that grief for ourselves and then helping our children in the ways that we can? So mm-hmm. there's that. I want to I want to table that for a second though because I feel like I want to go back to that grief that happens with a diagnosis of Down syndrome, Mm -hmm. like that starting point for a lot of the people listening, that they get a diagnosis either at birth or in utero. And I have yet to hear a story where grief is not attached to it, Mm -hmm. to that diagnosis. And I've met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of family members who love a person with Down syndrome and everyone has their own journey. 
But it seems to also tag on, tag along, brief, tag along for the journey Mm -hmm. and pop its head up. Like I was sharing, I feel it now more than I ever have felt it with Macy. Yeah. So what, I don't even know what the question is there. We go back to that beginning point of grief and a diagnosis. What's happening? (laughs) What's happening in the minds and hearts and souls of, of that? where the grief is coming from. What do you think? Well, I want to start by saying that grief is not a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not an affliction. I like to think of grief as an opportunity. It doesn't always feel good. It's not comfortable. It brings up a lot, Um, but it's not a bad thing. So it's not something we need to, you know, quickly push through or get over or fix. Uh, Grief is about loss. Loss is about change. Um, So what, what was expected is no longer you know, so there's a change happening to what we're expecting and what the ideas that we had in our head. Um, any kind of certainty we thought we had about something is now gone. There's grief in that. Um, and that's really important to recognize. And it's, you know, I feel like it's our life's greatest work is to be able to sit with uncertainty as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very uncomfortable and very hard to do. But allowing ourselves to be in that space and to meet all of the feelings that come up and to be honest with them and to see them and to really look at all of it, look at all the fear, look at everything that comes with it, Um, let yourself fall apart, let yourself break down. I think there's a lot of resistance to that um, for many reasons. It, It feels scary. It's uncomfortable. But also, I think especially as parents, you know, we don't always feel like we can afford to break down and fall apart and um, that that isn't an option all the time, but that falling apart and breaking down is how we reconstruct into a new way of thinking about things and a new way of mm-hmm. being and a new identity. And so in all of those ways, I think about grief as an opportunity when we push it away or resist it or try to fight it. That is when things get really tangled. You know, that's when we stop being true with what we're feeling. That's when we start getting anxiety or we start getting irritable or angry or, you know, leaning into unhealthy coping mechanisms. So first and foremost, just being real with the grief, making space for it, opening up to it, um, acknowledging it, finding outlets to talk about it and be honest about it uh, is the most important thing to do in the beginning. How important is it to have people alongside you in that or is grief is it better together or is it something you have to do individually a little bit of both a little bit of both but I do think that connection and community is really important in grief Um, I think we can just doubt a lot of ourselves in grief Um, we are very vulnerable we're having maybe thoughts feelings questions we've never had before Um, we're viewing ourselves and the world in new ways. And so to have other people who can bolster us, validate us, um, guide us along that way is really helpful. But Mm -hmm. some of that that does mean turning inward and just doing a lot of internal self-reflection as well. Do you have some, a couple like your go-to tools for that, for how to go inward and do some of the work, things that parents can like do today, you know, without... Because as you know, this is your field, the the work can be a lot and mm-hmm. hard and ongoing, but what's mm-hmm. something that it's like today I can do this thing? I mean, everyone rolls their eyes, but I think writing and journaling, it's so mm-hmm. important. It's so, so simple. 
but just sitting down and, you know, creating a daily practice where you just write for five minutes in the morning. I know none of us have any time, but like sitting down, writing for five minutes, you get the kids to school or whatever, and you sit down and just put a timer on your phone, write, free write for five minutes, see what comes out. It's kind of amazing um, what will come up that we don't even realize we're holding and carrying. And that can either lend itself to deeper reflection or just unburden us. And so that we can go into our day without carrying so much turmoil. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple thing we can do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Can you take us back even further? This is actually the first question I was going to ask you, but then we just got into my therapy session about your work with grief. Like, where did this come from for you? If you don't mind sharing with our audience, why is this important to you? Share a little Um, of your story. Yeah. I was 14 when both my parents got cancer at the same time. I'm an only child. My mom, who I was very, very close to, died when I was a freshman in college. And my father died seven years later mm-hmm. when I was 25. And I just entered into young adulthood with no immediate family and a lot of grief and loss wow. and just a mess. Um, and just in a space that was so different from all of my peers. You know, my friends were all like post college, living in their new apartments and trying on careers and relationships. And I was like, what the? the world about. Sorry, can I swear? Um, you can, we'll explicit it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think just like I, I entered into, you know, my, my 20s and just thinking about things that a lot of people weren't. And I also did not know where to turn. Um, I didn't know where to find support or help for what I was going through. I had a lot of anxiety. Um, substance abuse came into the picture, just not great relationships hit rock bottom in different ways and discovered yoga and meditation and got into therapy and, you know, realized that there were so many paths to healing, but that not all of them were obvious to most people and grief itself. I mean, grief has changed a lot in the last 20 years. The way we talk about grief, the way we understand grief, the way we support it has really changed since I was in my twenties. And, um, I'm really heartened to see how many more resources there are. But when I was really in the throes of it, there wasn't a lot. So I've been writing about it, talking about it, working in this field for a long time now. Mm-hmm. It's really important. It's really important. I want to talk touch on something you said there where you had all these friends going into adolescence who did have a support system that you didn't have. And so can you touch on grief as it relates to comparison or... And then maybe that leads to isolation mm-hmm. and maybe even some tools. I think compare, I don't think this comparison is a huge piece, plays a big role in the Down syndrome community. I've yet to meet a parent who has not felt some sort of like, oh, my kid's not doing what your kid's doing feeling mm-hmm. that I think the feeling is grief, mm-hmm. um, a form of grief because of what's not happening because of what's happening to somebody else. So can you talk about grief in comparison and how we can work through some of that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's always there. It's, it's there in all aspects of life. We're always looking at others and and trying to figure out what everybody has that we don't. I think so many of us feel, um, that other people have things figured out or other things, uh, other things are easier for other people, or we're doing something wrong. There's a lot of self-doubt that comes up. There's a lack of self-compassion that we have for Mm -hmm. wherever we are on our journey or whatever we do have. There's this lack of gratitude and self-compassion. So those are pieces that I use in my work a lot 
um, we get so focused on what we don't have, uh, where we want to be, where we want our children to be, uh, that we get really blinded by that. And so I think taking a step back and doing some really simple stuff like gratitude work, um, self-compassion, those things may seem very simple, but they're really, really vital because if we're not operating from a place of gratitude and compassion, then we're operating from a place of, you know, envy and want and comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about grief and isolation? They go hand in hand. (laughs) (laughs) Talk talk us more a little bit, talk to us a little bit more about why that is, like what's happening to us in that. I think when we're grieving, we're seeing the world through a new lens. We're seeing everything in a different way. It's not what we thought it was. It's not going to be what we thought it was. Um, Everything is shifting. And yet we perceive other people are living a quote unquote normal life. Like they're still doing the regular thing. You know, I see this all the time. It feels like you are the only one going through something and everyone else is still, you know, in this bubble of perfection. And social media really exacerbates this. You know, we all know this by this, by now that social media is such an illusion, but it's so constant and it's so pervasive that it really perpetuates the feeling that we are alone. Um, And again, I think that that itself is an illusion. We're not alone and we're, we don't have to isolate. I think finding connection and community, especially when we're grieving is really important. Mm -hmm. I lead a lot of grief groups and the, the real healing that comes is when you sit across from somebody, either on Zoom or on a, at a, in a room, and you say, oh my God, you feel that too, or you had that thought too, or that question, um, and you realize that you're not crazy, you're not doing something wrong, you're not a mess, um, you're human, you know, you're mm-hmm. doing you're doing the best you can in the circumstances you have. Yeah. I, I have found so much that when I'm feeling, when I'm grieving something in life or life feels out of control and unbelievably challenging. And then I lean towards that like isolation and I get really frustrated when people try to, to put a bow on it mm-hmm. or fix it. Like there, I, yeah, that I, toxic I, positivity is just yeah. maddening. Mm-hmm. Just let me feel sad. Like yeah. let me yeah. have this moment of being really sad. And, yeah. and what I need from you is just that I see you mm-hmm. or, or I'm sorry. Um, and how quickly we try to put a bow on it and try to make it okay. Or we shame people. You know, I saw a lot of Mm. this during the pandemic where somebody would write something on social media about how sad they were to be missing a wedding or having their kids home from school or whatever it was. And then people would jump all over them and be like, well, at least you have A, B, and C. At least you have this. Like, be grateful for this. And no, we get to have our feelings and everybody gets to grieve. We're allowed to grieve. You know, we all feel grief. We all feel loss. Uh, so I think you're right. Some of the isolation does come there where we we become afraid to voice some of these feelings. And mm-hmm. that's why finding the right community and the right support where you can say these things and have them met with totally me too is really important. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who are wanting to come alongside someone who's grieving? A, let's say it's a diagnosis, like you're a grandparent listening, or I would even say this for myself when people reach out to me. And I, I have my toolbox for how I can come alongside a new parent, mm-hmm. but I, even then it feels like I, I know I'm missing things here too, mm-hmm. right? Like I know there's more here that can be helpful. What have you found in all of your work that are the, that you have found have been most helpful, I think would be the right way to ask it in coming alongside people who are grieving. 
Yeah, I think of it as like companioning. Um, you know, you companion someone alongside and and I it's a hard role. It's really tricky for so many of us. We want to fix things. We want to make somebody feel better. We want to give them answers, solutions, things they can do. We want to paint a vision of them feeling better soon or everything being okay. And we can't always do that, you know? And so it becomes a matter of really being a companion um, to them in the space that they're in, meeting them where they are, not trying to show them where they could be or where we want them to be, um, or even where they want to be. It's about really meeting them in the dark, sitting with them in the dark, being there with them, not having the answers, but yet being able to still stay there. So I think so many people are afraid to sit in the dark with us because it's scary for them and they just, you know, they want to find their own answers for us, but just to be able to sit there and to not have the answers, but say, I'm here with you, um, mm -hmm. to be curious rather than trying to fix rather than shaming or, or fixing, just being curious, you know, I'm listening, I'm here. Tell me everything. Tell me what it feels like. Um, let me walk with you. In that companioning, it's a great word. Is there a time, depending on the relationship, let's say it's a family member, so there's some closeness there, and it's a good relationship with a family member. Um, <laughs> is, is there is there a moment of, I'm sitting with you, I'm being curious, and here, and we have to take a step. Is there a moment of, a, a step needs to be taken in a different direction towards some healing? Um, is, that, is there ever a place for coming alongside and helping someone take those steps or is that just such an internal personal thing? Does that question make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I think, yes, there is a time for that, but you have to go into it with the expectation that the person you're companioning isn't necessarily going to want to take it in that okay. moment or ever. You know, I mean, mm. we've all been, we've all sat with friends who have been in numerous situations where we can see the steps towards healing that they're not taking yet. And it's hard for us, you know, it can be frustrating, you know, um, it can be disheartening. It can be maddening. You can feel angry at them. Why aren't you taking these obvious steps to heal? And in that case, it becomes an internal reflection of like, can I sit with this? Can I companion them, even though they're not moving in this direction that I know yeah. would be helpful for them? Um, can I trust oh, that man. they're on their own journey and that they're going to, they're going to do it when they're ready. Yeah. That's really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And there are times when we have to make changes and set boundaries, you know, it may mm -hmm. be too hard in times, um, or it may be detrimental to us. Hmm. That's really interesting. I've got like all these things. This year has been a really awful year for the Avis family, my family. Hmm. And, um, I've got like, like all these different events that I'm, I'm trying to get some help on here too while keeping this relevant for my audience. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that is a helpful, that's helpful. Okay. Another question. Um, talk about your understanding and experience with grief and avoidance. <laughs> Those also go hand in hand. Right. <laughs> uh, we love to avoid grief. And I guess, um, let me add a little piece of that. Is there, is it ever helpful or not to, is avoidance helpful? Are there times when avoidance is helpful? Is there a time when avoidance is only hurtful? Is it a mix of both? 
when it comes to grief. There are times when it's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. We can only be in acute pain for so long, right? Like Mm. there's actually a theory of grief called the dual process model where it talks about how we have to be in our regular day-to-day and space out and watch TV and do things, you know, and then we also have to take time to be in our grief and we can't just pick one, you know, so we have to oscillate between the two. And, and I think that that is important. Um, we can only withstand or have the bandwidth for so much like inner exploration and anguish. And, and then we need to take a break and watch Netflix, you know, um, and then come back to it. And so I do think that there are times when it's helpful. We all know when we're in an unhealthy space of avoidance, you know, we all know when we've been avoiding something for too long or it's starting to spill out in the wrong places. Um, and even when we know it, it doesn't mean we necessarily stop avoiding it. But I think my only my point is that we know the distinction between healthy avoidance and unhealthy avoidance. Mm-hmm. And in an unhealthy avoidance state, like you said, you get to that point where it's spilling out and mm-hmm. it's almost like a crisis mode. Like, mm-hmm. oh, And sometimes shit. it takes us to that point to get, to start to make change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have to get to that place in order to make the change. Mm-hmm. And then other times we can, we can recognize when it's, when it's happening and we can start to make small changes. Hmm. What, what are some tools that you, that people can have when they've hit that point, right? With avoidance and grief and all that. And they're like, well, here we are. This is a mess. Mm-hmm. Step one. I mean, step one, just sit down on the floor in the middle of the mess and say, what is this asking of me? What is being asked of me right now? You know, like, what is it I'm avoiding? Let's look it in the eye, even just for a minute and see what it is. And, and then if it feels insurmountable and overwhelming, ask for help. We're so bad about asking for help. You know, we really are. Um, and if, you know, if anyone came to you and was like, oh my God, I'm sitting in the wreck of my life. I need help you know, for any of, any of us, we would say to our good friends, like, of course, like I will, I would do whatever for my friends. I would come over and take out the trash. I would take them to an AA meeting. I would do whatever was needed, you know? Um, and so I think just sitting in the wreckage and seeing it for what it is rather than running and asking for help. Yeah, That's good. And asking for help is so hard Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of people. I know not for everybody, but it is, Yeah, it is for me for sure. So hard. And I, I find for myself that I get in it, I get in a weird, it's really an unhealthy space of, I want people to help. I want people to want to help me, mm-hmm. but I don't want to accept the help, which is just real twisted <laughs> and unfair for the people in my life. Right. Who want yeah. to help me, but I'll, I get weird like that. Like, yes, I want you to want to help me, but it, but if you're going to show up to my house, no, 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 I don't need the help. I don't need the help. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. What's that? Help help me with that, Claire. (laughs) You know, I think some of it's maybe control, just like, you know, you you want them to help, but then they come in and they're not going to do it right. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) some of it's just basic control stuff that I think as moms, we all just get way too deep into like doing everything for everybody and doing it faster and better most of the time. So kind of like letting go of some of those pieces, like, okay, you know, let them help in any way that they can and want to. And I'm going to just actually take care of myself. You know, really, Mm -hmm. I think, I think we've gotten into a place as women and as mothers, especially just where we don't know how to let other people take over and do things. Um, And we really need to, it's, it's, it's much to our own suffering 
that we've gotten into that space. Um, and then some of it is fear, you know, um, I think when we've been through enough trauma or loss or big things in our lives, it can feel really scary to lean on other people. Um, what if, what if you let somebody help you and then they don't, or they disappear on you, you know, where's that going to leave you? But looking that in the eye and being prepared to feel that is part of it. Yeah. It's always interesting how it just constantly comes back to internal, right? Like doing, doing the internal work. And mm -hmm. I, I know, I don't know if, if you experience it with clients and people you work with, or if you can relate to this, but I just want it to be about somebody else all the time. Yeah. Like I don't want it. I don't want to turn it in, inward and do that hard work. It's like, mm -hmm. I think it really is. If this person did this thing, then I would be better too. Mm -hmm. And just how, I don't think that's helpful yeah. to think that way. Yeah. Well, it's, it's avoiding ourselves, you know, when we do mm. that. And we're not, we're not doing our work. I mean, I've built a whole career around helping other people instead of myself. Sure. You know, I know it well. <laughs> I have to keep a, I have to keep a check on that at all times. It's so much easier for me to do everything for everybody else, but not for me. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take it back um, a couple more questions and talking a little bit more to parents specifically raising our kids with Down syndrome. And so much of what you have shared is incredibly helpful. And, and I still feel, it still feels, um, I don't know all the words here, Claire to use, but we'll use the word difficult, hard to know how to help my child with Down syndrome in their grief or how, um, how to like hold my grief around Down syndrome mm -hmm. and that, that I think is going to tag along with me for my child's whole life, my whole life mm -hmm. and to hold my child who I don't regret having in my life for a second. Mm -hmm. And somehow these things feel contradictory mm -hmm. and yet they're happening at the same time. Yeah. And then, and then we're going along, going along. And like what I started the episode with, and then there's this moment with, we're going into summer. Macy doesn't have a friend. Mm -hmm. I can't even talk about it without crying, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe she's fine, but maybe she's not. And maybe I'll never know because she's not going to communicate it in a way that I can understand. And it's all just happening all at the same time in yeah. my hands that both and. Yeah. And I think that both and. No, I get Sorry, it. that wasn't a question. It was just, <laughs> here, take it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that both and is really important. I'm always saying two things can be true at once. You know, we can yeah. hold multitudes. You don't have to just pick one. You don't have to just be grieving all the time or swimming in that all the time. You can hold that grief and then you can also let it all be okay and let it be what it is and not know um, and, mm -hmm. and, and see what's happening. Um, so rather than forcing yourself into one of them, just continuing to hold that space for the both and, but remembering too, that grief isn't a bad thing. So when that, when that grief is sitting with you, find something to do with it, like do something creative with it, write her a letter, um, mm -hmm. write yourself a letter 10 years from now, um, put that energy into like art or go for a walk when you're feeling that stuff, look at old pictures, like just do something with it. Um, funnel it somewhere. Uh, it's, it's asking to, for, it's asking for an outlet. Um, so don't let it just sit right in the middle of your chest. Um, 
move move that grief somewhere. Um, but I mean, children in grief, it's a really interesting thing. Um, any child, we project, we project a lot of grief onto them. And when children are grieving, their grief is really different from ours because they are not thinking about their life and the world in the same way that we are. Um, they develop at different times. Their grief continues to change. They have a kind of protracted long grief because um, as they hit different developmental milestones, their grief comes fresh in a new way where they understand something in a new way. Um, mm-hmm. But we're looking at a child at any age or any development and just projecting everything that we know from age right. 35, 40, 50 onto that, which is not their experience. Yeah. Um, they're very present creatures, you know, like they are very much in the present moment where we are thinking so much into the future. We're thinking so much into the past. They're not, they're right mm-hmm. in the moment. And so remembering that too, and being in that moment with them can help. Mm-hmm. What are other ways we can help our kids through grief? And let's talk even specifically our siblings who have a sibling with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I can think about my middle daughter, Truly, who has two siblings siblings with Down syndrome. And I I can watch her process that. And maybe I, I would, we all just know friends, I'm projecting myself all the time on my kids. It's really a work in progress. We all are. And, <laughs> and she, she's never used the words grief around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of our listeners could say there's moments with our, kids with Down syndrome with their siblings where they recognize in that in the present moment of like oh this isn't like what Mm -hmm. I thought it would Mm -hmm. be or could be what are some things that we can do as parents to help our kiddos process through the grief they might experience around their siblings diagnosis talk about it open up that conversation hold space for it ask her questions Mm -hmm. be open to her answers Um, whether her answers are what you expect or not, those may change too, whether she wants to reveal everything she's thinking or feeling that will change as well, but really opening it up and holding space for it, seeing her, seeing it, telling her that you see it, Mm -hmm. um, being truthful about what you are feeling or seeing, because again, that might be different from what she is and not putting what you're seeing or feeling on her necessarily, um, And just remembering that, like, God, I bet she will, like, she herself truly is set apart from hers, her peers. She, but in in a way, that's a gift, you know. She sees the world in so many more complex layers than her peers, and that will be beautiful. Will give her appreciation and understanding and empathy in ways that will put her far ahead of others, Um, and and give her an opportunity for self reflection. I mean, I I know most people would say that this is true, that the worst things that have ever happened to you, the hardest things that have ever happened to you have made you a better person, have made right. you who you are, you know, have given yeah. you um, profound gifts of being able to understand the world and yourself in different ways. So I don't want to erase or take away that the pain that she might feel or that you might feel watching her, um, but just to remember too that from all of those challenging experiences comes so much depth and awareness and beauty. Yeah. That's good. It's good. Claire, you're good at this. Uh, <laughs> talk a little bit about, I've got like four more things, a little bit about relationships 
with people like maybe our spouses and how relationships with people we're close to are affected when we are grieving ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I mean, talked. I asked you about like coming alongside people who are grieving, but just what you've seen in your work, um, what can happen in relationships so that we have like an awareness about about that and maybe some ways to avoid the tragedy that could take place mm-hmm. in that. We're never all grieving at the same time or in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. It's really yeah. hard to understand someone else's grief. Um, it's hard to align with it. It's hard to be in it with them. Um, so even when, you know, say partners, spouses are grieving the same thing, the grief is not the same and it doesn't line up. And so that can be really difficult. Um, and it can feel lonely and you can build resentment. Um, you can want that person to come along with you and feel it at the same time, or you can be angry at them for not seeing and understanding the grief you're feeling, um, vice versa. And, and I think just recognizing that, knowing that truth from the get-go. So losing the expectation that one, somebody's always going to understand and recognize your grief and want to be in it with you, um, or that they're going to be grieving the same way, um, is important to just kind of like take that expectation off the table and then go back to that same idea I keep returning to of connection and community in other places. You know, um, I have never had a partner who has been through the kind of grief I've been through, um, Every man I've ever been with has had two parents who are still alive, you know, and so that's been really hard in my life. And and for a long time when I was young, you know, in like my relationships in my 20s, I really would feel upset or angry or alone in my relationship that they didn't understand. When I began to find communities and other places to talk about that grief and feel seen and understood, I stopped caring if they saw it or understood and was mm. able to just be in my relationship and be appreciative of it. Yeah. So the same, that applies to any kind of situation, you know? So if you can find a place to feel seen and connected and understood, it doesn't have to be in your partnership. It can mm-hmm. be elsewhere. And then that can let your partnership be what it is. Mm-hmm. Are there grief, like you said, you have support groups that you oversee Mm-hmm. What, what's yeah that you're a part of that you've started that you help with is that facilitate readily, <laughs> thank you that's the word the word is facilitate is have you found that in across the nation at least that those are readily available to people um how, like where do people even go to find yeah. a group you can just google grief support near me or something okay. like that um absolutely but i would think too in the down syndrome community you know there are a lot of amazing communities and yeah. places to gather and so maybe teasing out a space or a a group or a community where you can talk specifically about grief or you can talk specifically about, you know, like what you're going through at this particular season. Um, I'm sure you're not alone. I'm sure there are lots of other moms in this same season. So kind of teasing that out and meeting once a month online or in a coffee shop and just talking about it, like that would be so that I think that would just bring so much to you. Yeah. The times that I've said things that have felt the most vulnerable in my, in the Down syndrome space specifically, because mm-hmm. I don't see other people experiencing it on it, on social, right? Like on the places where it's being shared or in the news channels or whatever, wherever the stories are being told mm-hmm. and shared. Um, and then I share a story that's very different. The amount of people that come and say, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one. Right. Mm-hmm. But in that, just the reward at 
when you risk being vulnerable yeah um can be really great absolutely for, for people yeah. one thing i know you have a list but i i do want to go back to this um grief around a diagnosis yeah he's if that's okay Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking right now about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who everybody knows who Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is. She coined the five stages of grief, right? Denial, mm-hmm. anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. What's interesting and what most people don't know about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is that she was working in a hospital in the 60s in Chicago when she came up with these five stages. And she was working with people who were facing the end of life, people who had just received a terminal diagnosis. They had just gotten the news that they were going to die. And what she saw was that they were going through these this progression of stages, denial, anger, bargaining with them, their higher power, the doctors themselves, you know, slumping into some depression and then coming around to acceptance and acknowledgement of like, oh my God, this is happening. This is real. This is happening. Those stages she later applied to grief and our, it just got swept away in our culture. The stages don't apply that well to death, to after someone is gone. They don't apply mm-hmm. as well to grieving. So when, when we have just lost somebody we love, we don't go through that same linear progression. However, if you go back to this diagnosis idea, we often do go through that progression. If we, were, if we ourselves receive a diagnosis of some sort, if our child receives a diagnosis, we do go through a pretty similar progression. You know, there's that initial denial. Is this really true? Is this happening? You know, I can't, you're in shock. You're kind of numb about it. Um, then there's maybe anger. Then you go into this bargaining stage. Then you go into some depression around it that lingers. Then you come around to, a, you know, you're accepting this. You're embracing it into your life. You're moving forward from this point. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about that. Do you see that progression in some ways with a Down syndrome diagnosis? Do you see people going through that kind of progression? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, so everything that you've shared, honestly, I can think of people I've spoken to and like that relationship piece, you know, like that, Mm -hmm. the amount of people I've said, like, my husband is fine with it. I'm not, I'm fine with it. My husband's not just like these Mm -hmm. different journeys. And then yes, there's definitely, I've definitely seen that progression with Mm -hmm. a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it might be really helpful to be kind of thinking about those five stages and looking at those turning towards those. They're really amazing guideposts and they make a lot of sense when we're kind of trying to wrap our heads around something. It's a complete shift in what we thought was going to be our life, our child's life, uh, what is happening in our world. Um, And I think that turning towards those and really looking at them can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. You said at the very beginning of of this episode that grief is an opportunity. Grief is about loss. Loss is about change. Mm -hmm. And for so many years, in my experience in knowing I was going to be raising kids with Down syndrome, it wasn't Down syndrome. It was the loss of an expectation. It was mm-hmm. an expected life I had to let go of. And living in an ableist society, it's hard to, it's hard and feels impossible, especially those beginning moments, to take to pull those two apart mm-hmm. and to not see Down syndrome as bad. And and this isn't everyone's experience, but this is kind of in being in the community and talking to people in my own experience. It wasn't really ever about Down syndrome, not that much. It was mm-hmm. about letting go of what you were hoping and expecting for your life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because you don't know. You don't even know right. what what that experience is going to be like and what your child's going to be like. There's no idea. You're. It's like a whole projection again of like right. what you think it might be like or what it's not going to be like. But just letting all of that go and opening up to what it what it will be and what it might be and everything yeah. it could be. 
Yeah. And, and the trick with any kind of disability diagnosis, especially to a parent, a non-disabled parent, is what society has painted the picture of that mm-hmm. person or those people that mm-hmm. is that isn't going to be your kid, right? Like that's yeah. not going to be your kid. Your kid is your kid. But right. how do you pull those things apart? Like how can right. you separate what so the lie is essentially that society's giving you about mm-hmm. a diagnosis, but your kid is not that. Your kid is your kid. Yeah. And, and it's just, um, and it's layered. really scary and overwhelming. Yeah. You're like pulling back this giant veil and you're like, Oh my God, totally. this is like, Oh, okay. Um, you know, it's really, it can be really overwhelming and, yeah. and there's a lot. So like just being kind with yourself, letting mm, yourself cycle so through these phases and like letting it be okay that you're having all kinds of thoughts and feelings and you're a mess in moments and you're feeling great in others. And, you know, it's, it's God, it's really hard to be human. It's really hard to be human. It's really hard to be human and to raise humans. Being a human, mm-hmm. raising humans is really quite a gig. It's the most um, humbling thing I've ever done. <laughs> seriously. I, f- I have found too for people in the Down syndrome space who have written books or have a platform or people are looking at, they, they've put a story into the world, me being one of them, that people have consumed. And mm-hmm. then you go about life and there's almost, there can almost be like an embarrassment of, mm-hmm. I, I can't believe that I felt that way. So when you're saying being gentle with yourself, that that idea of being gentle with yourself is be gentle with your past self, right? Like your current self, look back and just have grace and love for her because she's doing the best she could in with what she knew instead of like that shame of, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe Mm -hmm. I thought that. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I did that. Yeah, absolutely. When we're talking about a diagnosis, also a lot of our listeners can relate to this. I know I can. Um, you get a diagnosis for Down syndrome and then maybe things are fine for a bit and you're processing through and you can see your grief for what it is and, and you're doing some work there and things are good. And then there's medical issues, right, that can come along with a diagnosis. So there's surgeries and hospital states, life expectancy, these real serious things that could also be true for our neurotypical kids without mm-hmm. disabilities, but they're not marked with that because mm-hmm. of a diagnosis. Can you give our listeners some tools on managing that, the anxiety that can come up with that? Like anxiety yeah. and grief. It's definitely anxiety. And it's anticipatory grief too. And it's also a lot of projection. You don't know you're getting all of these like scary ideas and, and you know, statistics or possibilities and you're just spinning out, right? Of course, it causes so much anxiety. Um, and it's a lot of uncertainty. It's not knowing. It's not knowing what's going to happen, how it's going to unfold, how long it's going to be here for or how long it's going to take to get to a certain space um, and so remembering that you're, you're sitting in a big sea of uncertainty, like you're just, sim- you're just swimming in it. Um, and when we're in that space, it's really important to get really present and to just find ways to ground. I like to think about trying to put blinders on, like not when we're, when we're in that space, we're spending a lot of time in the past spinning out and thinking about what was or choices we made or what we could have done different. And we're spending a ton of time in the future projecting all these ideas onto what might happen or how it might feel, just bringing your awareness back to the present moment, breathing. And obviously we, we can't be in the present moment all the time. We're going sure. to go into those two spaces. But when you find yourself spinning out in one of those spaces, just take a breath, come mm-hmm. back to the present moment, do something that's grounding. Like I like to just feel like, what's the temperature of the air? You know, like, am I hungry? Um, you know, like, what, what does my mouth taste like right now? Just anything to bring me into this very moment 
of time rather than existing in these places that don't exist. You know? mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So anxiety I, is tough. It's, it can really spiral. Yeah. I, when my daughter Mason was little, she was born with a congenital heart defect and pulmonary hypertension. And we were told she might only live to be five or six years old. And mm-hmm. she was on oxygen and medication and had that whole gamut. And I can look back at that moment and I can look back to a transformative moment for me, which was this idea that's so simple that we all know, but I had to live it profoundly of this is all I have is this moment. Mm-hmm. Nothing else exists. Mm-hmm. And I, we can all say that, right? Exactly. But, but I had to live it. I had to mm-hmm. be there. And it, it was, I say it all the time. She was the gift of my life in that, like, there's a tethering that she offered me then um, because her life really was moment by moment by moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that we're on the other side of that. And she's totally healthy. But that reality of that actually is the truth for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, I think I would have missed it or it would have come to me in a different way if I didn't have that opportunity to have to live it and embrace it yeah, and let it transform me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a real gift. It is. Personally. It really is. It's beautiful. Um, it's, it's hard one, you know, we often sure. come to it in moments of crisis. Um, but it's, it really is, uh, an incredible kind of tool to be able to have and a place to tap into and a reminder yeah. this moment is what is, exists. Mm-hmm. And, and even going into life as life is what it is. And it, like we've said here, it's so hard. It can be so hard. Mm-hmm. It's paved a different path for me to get to walk down that feels I guess more complex in the ways that help me embrace it you know like help me Mm -hmm. embrace it with gratitude and and some real like a reality of this is what it is and I I don't there's a lot of surrendering that has to happen surrendering yeah Mm -hmm. yeah which is terrifying and then when you do it you're like the scariest thing but then once you've done it you're like oh you can do that kind of simple yeah Right. <laughs> I always think about like, I always think about my fist, like I'm clenching my fist all the time, trying to control everything or trying to make things happen. And then just open, open your hand, you know, mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. let go. Just a release. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I could talk for a hundred more hours to you about all of these things. I think that each little topic could be its own hour long conversation. Before we go, can you tell our listeners some recommended resources? Like, I know you have a podcast. Tell us everything that you have done. We'll get, we'll have links to that. But then maybe some other go-tos. Maybe there's a website that you recommend or other go-tos you recommend to our audience for resources, for support. Yeah. Um, my most recent book is Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief, which I think can be really helpful in a lot of ways. I have a new book coming out called Conscious Grieving, which is really about looking at grief as an opportunity and embracing it, leaning into it, learning from it, growing from it. Um, I do have a podcast and I have a website, clairebidwellsmith.com. My podcast is called New Day. Um, and just it's all everything I do is kind of chock full of resources and tools. And um, on my website, you can find a really comprehensive grief resource list for every kind of grief you're experiencing every kind of loss you're going through, um, books, you know, meditations, camps, like everything. So it's all there on my website. That's super helpful. We'll have links to that listeners. And then what, do you have a a go-to, like a favorite author or a go-to for when you need assistance with your grief? And would you share that? Pema Chodron, When Things Fall Apart. 
there you go. (laughs) That's a good one. Yep. Clara, I can't believe that you spent this hour with me and our audience. And I'm so unbelievably grateful. I, I'm hoping that our audience comes back with some questions. Maybe we can have you on again sometime. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time and giving us your expertise on this topic. Thanks to Lindsay for connecting us. And thank you, Lindsay Strickland. She gets actually all the credit. So she does. (laughs) Thanks, Heather. We're going to take a break and be right back. This week's episode is sponsored by Able Now, tax advantage savings accounts for eligible individuals with disabilities. What's on your wish list this holiday season? For a simple and practical solution, consider requesting gift contributions to an Able Now account. With Able Now, family and friends can provide financial assistance without endangering an account owner's eligibility for certain disability benefits. Money in your Able Now account is available when you need it most. There's no requirements to spin down or an expiration date like a gift card. Funds in an Able Now account are yours to spend any time. An Able Now account can be used for a broad range of qualified disability expenses such as food, wellness, transportation, and more. An Able Now contribution gives you flexibility to choose what you want, what you need, or combine the gift with other funds for something extra special. Once you have an Able Now account, anyone can contribute. Get started at ablenow.com. That's ablenow.com. All right, time to wrap up this episode. Claire Bidwell-Smith, you are such a rock star, amazing mama and therapist. And I am learned so much today. I'm incredibly grateful for everything that you've shared and that you took the time to be with us. I've said it already, but cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. Thank you. Listeners, did you know that at theluckyfew.co, we have Christmas items We have a t-shirt that has the lucky few arrows on it in the form of a Christmas tree on a red shirt or a green shirt. And it's super duper cute. And you can get 10% off all of your purchases at theluckyfew.co. Use code podcast. So you're going to need to order it ASAP like today, but you'll get it. Order it today. You'll get it. And then Josh, thanks for editing this episode and Ashley Fracolosi for producing it. If you like this episode, share it with family and friends. Don't forget to subscribe. Head over to theluckyfewpodcast.com. Check out our show notes. There's going to be links to anything else we talked about today. And be sure to follow on social media at theluckyfewpod. Listener, you know what comes next. You're slaying it. You're slaying it. We are here for you, cheering you on. We love you so much. And we can't wait to be together on another episode. Until then, love on. <laughs>